Good morning. God bless you for being here this morning. And certainly, it's been a blessing to be in the house of the Lord so far this morning. And I just, um, just tremendously appreciated Kurt's devotions this morning. And I may uh, make a few comments on that uh, later here in the message. So, it seems like quite a while since I preached here, and so I appreciate your prayers. We want to continue in our um, study on the life of David, and we looked at First um, Samuel chapter 11 the last time I preached, and looked at um, David and Bathsheba. And so in a message this morning then, I'd like to focus uh, primarily on Nathan the prophet. Um, I'll be shifting gears a little bit later in the message, um, but I'd like to, at least in the first part here, think about uh, Nathan the prophet. I think all of us find ourselves I think all of us find ourselves in situations at times where perhaps we see something in another person that is not the best. Maybe a person making some unwise decisions, making a, maybe a person even uh, being involved in something wrong. And in that context, then, I'd like to think about Nathan the prophet in our message here this morning. Um, Nathan, uh, I believe, was um, in tune with the Lord, in tune with the Holy Spirit when he confronted David. It was uh, the kind of confrontation that could have gone a lot of different ways, the kind of confrontation that couldn't have, that had the potential of not ending well. Um, but I believe Nathan put a lot of thought into this confrontation. He was sent by the Lord, and so we'd like to look at that as we go through at least the first part of our message here. The first time we read of Nathan the prophet is in 1 Samuel chapter 7. Um, Nathan here in 1 Samuel chapter 7, we find Nathan and David together here. It's obvious from the context of the way this is written that, that Nathan and David had a good relationship. They were friends. In, in this chapter, we have David kind of brainstorming a little bit, and he's telling Nathan the prophet, you know, Nathan, I, I've, I'm living in a house that is the greatest, finest house, of, probably the finest house in Israel. And the tabernacle is, living in a, is, is dwelling in a tent. This tent would have been made hundreds of years before, during the time of Moses. Probably every part of the tent had been replaced numerous times over the years. It was, a, yeah, it was just that, a tent. A building that was covered with animal skins, 
The skins had probably been replaced many, many times over the years because they wore out. The weather was, the sun was hard on them. The weather was hard on them. And David is telling Nathan, he said, I'd like to build a permanent house for the Lord. And so it's obvious here that Nathan and David had a good relationship. So David was kind of brainstorming, and he's talking to Nathan about what he would like to do. I'd like to build a permanent house for the Lord. And so Nathan says, great, go ahead, do what you want to do. Do what's on your heart. That night, the Lord had a different message for Nathan. So the Lord came to Nathan that night, and he said, I don't want David to build a house. David is a man of war. I don't want David building a house for me, but I want his son to do it. And so we have Nathan the prophet going to David again the next day. And it's interesting here, uh, Nathan is a very tactful kind of a person. And when you read through this part here in, in chapter seven, Nathan never tells David that he's not going to build a house. He tells David that your throne will be established in Israel forever. And then he tells David, your son will build the house. Your son will build the house. And um, Nathan had a good way of connecting with David and without destroying this vision that David had of building a house for God. He had a good way of doing it, but he said, your son will build a house. Along with that, there was promises that went with that, and uh, he said, your throne will be established forever, um, and that throne continues in, in not only a physical kingdom, but also in uh, Jesus. Um, he says, I will be, talking about his son, he says, I will be his father, he shall be my son. If you commit iniquity, I will chastise him. And he said, but he says, your son is going to build the house for me. So we go to chapter 12, and um, we, we track Nathan in in. Um, in 1 Samuel chapter 12, we track Nathan's life here and his confrontation with uh, David. And this would have happened about a year after um, David's encounter with Bathsheba. So the child is born, the child is several months old. So Nathan doesn't come right after the sin. Nathan doesn't come right after he marries Bathsheba. Nathan doesn't come you know, he waits a year. In Psalm 32, David talks about a little about that year. He talks a little about that year, and he says, uh, he says, my bones waxed old through my groaning. David didn't have an easy year. A year of living with this guilt of having killed Uriah and his adultery with Bathsheba a year of living with that guilt. And then the word of the Lord comes to Nathan. He says, go to David. Go to David. And God, Nathan probably didn't know this with Bathsheba, unless he 
kind of figured it out. He probably didn't know this, but God told him. God told him, go to Nathan, or go to David. God told Nathan to go to David and confront David with this sin. We have Nathan putting a lot of thought into this. We have Nathan putting a lot of thought into this, conver into this confrontation. So he was going to confront a very, very powerful king. He was going to confront a very, very powerful king with a very, very serious, with a very, very serious sin. We find that, um, I believe that Nathan and David had a relationship of, a friendship relationship, a relationship of trust, a relationship where they were able to talk to each other about their dreams, their ambitions, and so on. And there was, there was, there was a connection there, a previous connection there. And I'd like to, I'd like to suggest uh, for us, and, and I have about four or five things I want to go through and, and think about as we, as we think about also uh, confronting someone with, with a wrong or an unwise choice that is being made. But generally, these, those kind of confrontations are done best on a friendship level. To confront somebody that you've never had a previous relationship with is usually not going to work out too well for you. It usually works best if you have a, a, for a friend to do that. Um, uh, Proverbs talks about this uh, several times in Proverbs. Proverbs 27, verse 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Was Nathan inflicting a wound on David? Sure it was. Sure it was. Confronting him with a sin. Proverbs 27, verse 17, as iron sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of a friend. The prophet comes to David as a friend and confronts him with that. There's um, also a verse here in Proverbs, I'm gonna have to turn to this one, Proverbs chapter 25, two verses here, verses 11 and 12. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. As an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold, so is a wise reprover upon an obedient ear. Nathan did not go to David as an emotional kind of a response. He did not go to David as a knee-jerk kind of, you know, off-the-cuff kind of a response, but he went to David with a well-thought idea and a well-thought pattern and a well-thought message. And I'm suggesting for us today that if we want to have effective, and I say confrontation, so it might not be a confrontation, but if we want to effectively communicate truth to someone that we feel needs something, we should put some time and energy and think about what we want to say, as Nathan did. In fact, before you confront somebody, it might be good to read this passage. 
Just read this passage and, and think about Nathan's response to David. So we have David coming, we have uh, Nathan coming to David as a friend. So there, there was a, a relationship, there was a previous relationship there. I think that's very foundational for, for effective confrontations, to have a previous relationship and, and uh, think about what you want to say and present. The second idea that we have uh, on this is that the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan wasn't just coming because suddenly he heard something about David, something through the grapevine, something, you know, through the community that he heard about. He wasn't responding in, on that level. It says the Lord sent him, the Lord sent him to David. Timing is everything. Prayer is everything as we think about as we think about talking to someone about a need in his life. Prayer is everything. The Holy Spirit's direction is very, very important. We don't respond just because we've heard something or because emotionally we feel something was wrong. We don't respond that way. It's not effective. It's, it will not be effective to do it in self-effort. It says the Lord told Nathan to go. And Nathan put much thought and prayer into what he was saying, and he was, I believe, directed by the Holy Spirit. At the same time, Nathan was not a procrastinator. Sometimes we feel like we should talk to someone, and we put it off. We put it off, and we don't get it done. So that's uh, procrastinating. So that's not effective either, right? That's not effective either. Um, and we don't know how much time Nathan took from the time the Lord told him to go until he actually went, but we do know that Nathan put some thought and some, some strategy into what he was going to tell David. And he comes to David with a story. So the story here is of a rich man and a poor man, one having lots of sheep and one having only one. David's response here is, 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 is really, really interesting. David's response here is really, really interesting. So Nathan goes through the story. David's, it says, and David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he told Nathan the man should die. Was that what the Old Testament law should, said should happen to a man who takes another man's sheep? Is this man worthy of death? No. Huh? man wasn't worthy of death but David said he should die he said the man's worthy of death and then after he dies he says oh he should he should replace it fourfold um, we find it later in chapter 12 later in chapter 12 we have Joab fighting against the Ammonites and this is the same battle that Uriah would have been killed. Joab is fighting against the, the children of Ammon and they took the city. They took the city and David's response here is interesting because it, the, the response is similar to the response of the man who took the sheep from 
the one who had early one. It's, it's, it, and his, his response is typical of a man who is dealing with guilt. So the man that took the sheep, David said he should die. When they conquered the city, it says David in uh, 31, chapter 12, verse 31. Again, we have kind of a radical response here to people that, to this city where he conquered. He said he brought the people forth. He put them under saws. He put them... He had, he had them under harrows of iron and under axes of iron and made them pass through the brick kiln. And before he did that, he took everything from them. He took all the spoil from the city and then he made the people work like slaves. Again, a typical response to a man who is dealing with guilt. And, and this is true of, of anyone. This is true today. When a person is dealing with guilt, he loses, he, in a sense, he loses proper discernment. We find that here with David, the man who took the sheep. He's worthy of death in this case here. He was extremely cruel to the people of the children of Ammon because, you know, he was dealing, I believe he was dealing with guilt. Later on, and this was even after David's forgiveness, later on with Ammon and Tamar, it says uh, David only got angry. He didn't do anything. And so this encounter with Bathsheba messed up his discernment not only here, but later also. The third response I have here from Nathan the prophet is that Nathan delivered God's message. Verse 7 says, um, chapter 12, verse 7, Nathan said to David, Thou art the man, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, David wasn't, or Nathan wasn't coming to David with his own message. He was coming to David with a message from the Lord. And I believe that is also very, very important if we think about confronting someone, that we have a message from the Lord. We're not coming with our own message, not coming with our own ideas, our own thoughts, our own whatever. We have a message from the Lord, something that's based in Scripture. And uh, the Lord probably isn't going to speak to us like he did to Nathan the prophet. But we can come with a message from the Lord. God told Nathan what to say. Nathan wasn't responding to some grapevine kind of ideas, but he was responding to what God had told him to do. I have, um, through the years, uh, already made the mistake of of, of talking to someone because someone else told me something that the person did or said that wasn't right. I've I rarely found those responses to be very effective. I rarely found those kind of responses to be very effective. And so it's very important that we come to someone with the truth. 
we find this coming through in uh, Galatians chapter 2. Um, maybe I'll just turn to this and read a couple of these verses. In uh, Galatians chapter 2, we have Paul confronting Peter. We have Paul confronting Peter, and this is the case where Peter was refused to eat with some of the Gentiles because some Jews were there. Okay, so Galatians chapter 2, um, I'll read verses 11 to 13. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them that were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. So here we have Peter, uh, Paul. We have Paul confronting Peter in this, in this case. I believe he was effective in his, in his confrontation. But here again, we have uh, Peter coming uh, Paul coming to Peter because of something that was indeed taking place. He was not responding because of grapevine, something that had come through, but he had observed this. He had observed this and was coming to um, uh, Peter with that message. Um, a, a, good, a good response from that. Uh, we also have in Scripture numerous times uh, the teaching that the truth, truth should be given in love. Truth should be given in love. We are, we will, we will rarely be effective in our confrontation if we harbor any kind of bad attitudes. We will rarely be effective in any kind of confrontation if we're harboring ill will or bad attitudes. Uh, the truth in love it can be very, very effective. I believe uh, Nathan was doing that. He came to God, he came to David with a message, a message from the Lord, um, spoken in love. He loved David. He wanted what was best for David. David had been going through a year of guilt. He was miserable. It was totally miserable. Psalm 32 talks about that. And I believe with Nathan's confrontation, suddenly for David, there was a sense of relief. Suddenly there's opportunity for confession. There was opportunity for forgiveness. We think about David as being a man after God's own heart. And you go through Psalm 51 and, um, and you look at David's response and his repentance. And we're going back to what Kurt was talking about this morning. David saw in his life, I believe David saw a need for change. And that's why his repentance was so effective. And you go through Psalm 51 and you see that uh, he talks about different aspects of his repentance and the fact that he had sinned against God. He had done this great evil against the Lord. And uh, he talks about it here in this, in this passage also. But I believe he saw a need for change. Suddenly he wouldn't, you know, he wasn't, he didn't want to live with himself like he did in the last year. He needed a, a change. And uh, God was giving him the opportunity to repent, and he took it. Uh, David 
a man after God's own heart, I believe, repented in a very, very proper kind of way. He repented in a very proper kind of way. The other, uh, the fourth aspect of Nathan's confrontation here is look at Nathan's courage and at the same time his, his humility. David was the most powerful king. He was the most powerful king on the earth at that time. He had, he, in all of David's battles, we have never seen David defeated in war. He was a powerful king with a powerful strategy for enlarging the borders of Israel. He enlarged the borders of Israel by 10 times. The, the size of Israel was 10 times larger at the end of David's reign than it was at the beginning. And Nathan comes to David with this sin of adultery, which probably very few people knew. David's response could have been very, very different than what it was, had his approach been different. In many ways, Nathan was probably putting his life on the line by going to David, even though he was a friend. We find Nathan to be very, very courageous. He wasn't a procrastinator, although he took some time. I believe he took some time and, and thought about what he wants to say. David was living with this sin for about a year before Nathan came to him. And then you look also at what Nathan tells David. Nathan also tells David that he's forgiven. God is going to forgive you, but... Here's a list. Here's a list of consequences that are going to be in your life because of your sin. And I don't have the verses written down for these. I just have these, these written down. But there's five areas here. There's five areas here that David, that Nathan addresses. Again, it takes a lot of courage to address the most powerful king on the earth about some of these things. Number one, and you go, th you go through this list here from uh, about verse 9 or 10 down to verse 13. It says, A sword shall never depart from your house. I will raise up evil. Number two, I will raise up evil from thine own house. Your wives will be taken from, thee, from you. You have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. And the child that was conceived is going to die. The last, um, and the scripture doesn't address this, the last consequence of David's sin, to me, and others that I've been reading on this account, to me and to others, would indicate that perhaps Bathsheba was not totally innocent in this situation. Because the child dying is also, is also affecting her probably even more directly than it does David. And we can see um, in some other messages we'll be going through some of this and looking at some of these uh, 
consequences that David, uh, from David in his, in his life uh, with um, his family. Most of these come from his family. Most of these come from his family. I believe David thoroughly repented. Uh, we find in this passage here, it says, uh, David says, the, I have sinned against the Lord. David was not blaming anybody. He was not saying, I sinned against Bathsheba. I sinned against Uriah. I sinned against the Lord. He lays it out. Uh, go, through Psalm, go through Psalm uh, 51, and, and the end there, David prays, Create in me a clean heart, O Lord. Did he see a need for change? Certainly. He saw a need for change, and he was able to properly repent. I know I addressed some of this before in a message, but I'd like to go through some of this again. I put a little more, maybe a little more meat on this uh, whole idea. And so I probably you know, risk the idea of repeating myself and so on, but whatever. But I believe, I believe sin, Sin has a two-sided disregard for God. Sin always has a two-sided disregard for God. It dishonors God in two ways. One is you have the sin, the disobedience. For David, it was adultery. For us, it's whatever. You have the sin. But the other disregard for God that we don't often think about is the fact that, that we have also disregarded God's provision to keep us from sinning. Do you understand the difference? So we have the sin. That's wrong. But we're also disregarding, we're dishonoring God by disregarding the provision that he has made for us to live above sin. And I'd like to think about that. I'd like to think about that a little bit in the next few minutes. So here's a question. Do you, I'd like to have some response. Do you believe that God, or do you have faith in God? Do you believe God has provided all the resources that you need in your life to not sin. Ben says yes. yes. Do you believe that God has given you the resources to live the rest of your life without sin? Yes. Yeah, he does. So where's the problem? No. We, we go into 1 John, and 1 John talks about forgiveness. And I believe, you know, we live, we need God's forgiveness every day. We should never, the, the, the death, the death, the suffering, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus are extremely important. And we live, to, to live, um, Biblical Christian lives, we should be living lives of repentance. Repentance should be a normal part of our life, not something that just happens at conversion. 
and not just something that happens in a catastrophe. It should be a normal part of our life. Forgiveness is very, very important for us. And I don't want to in any way minimize the importance of forgiveness. But I, I, I believe that an overemphasis on forgiveness will tend toward careless living. Am I saying forgiveness is not important? No, don't, don't, don't put me down as saying forgiveness is not important. But I believe an overemphasis on forgiveness can lead toward careless living. We should be going back into Romans chapter 6 and think about the power that God has given us to live above sin and the fact that potentially we never have to sin. And why is this so important? Why is this so important? Because we tend to think of sin in terms of forgiveness instead of thinking of sin in terms of its consequences. Forgiveness is everything. We need God's forgiveness every day. We can't live without his forgiveness. But I'm telling you, sin will always have consequences, even in the context of forgiveness. Just as we have here in David's life. We may not experience the consequences to the extent that David did, but sin will always carry consequences. By God's grace, he enables us to work through those, through those consequences he did for David. By God's grace, we're able to work through those. God gives us resources to work through them, but sin has consequences. So we should, in our, I believe in our Christian lives, we should think about, we should think more about the provision God has made for us to live above sin. I'd just like to maybe close here with some verses from Romans. Romans chapter 6, reading a few verses here. I'm reading verses 4 and 5. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God, by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. If we then have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we also we shall also in the likeness of we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that the old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Through the resurrection of Jesus, his death and resurrection, Jesus potentially gives us power to never sin, right? He gives us the power to never sin. Chapter 6, verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, ye are not, for ye are not under the law, under the law, but under grace. 
And I, and I believe that we have, a, we have, sometimes we have the wrong idea of grace, and we think of grace as something that we get for nothing. Grace is salvation, it's a gift God gives us. It's, a, it's something we get for nothing. We all like it, right? We like stuff we get for nothing. The salvation package is in some ways that way, something we get for nothing. Well, don't take that quote too far theologically, okay? <laughs> all right. But if we look at grace, at the word grace as it's used in the New Testament, the, the word grace is translated in the Greek, charis, C-H-A-R-I-S. And it's the same word, the word charis is the word where we get our word charisma. And so part of grace is unmerited favor. But the other part of grace is divine enablement. The other part of grace gives us the power to live above sin. That's the part we're missing sometimes in our definition of grace. It's the part we're missing. So it, grace is kind of a two-sided thing. And in some ways, you might say the two sides are opposite of each other. One, we get something we don't deserve. But on the, at the same time, we also getting power that we don't deserve either. Through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we get power to live above sin. And when we live above sin, we can also live above the consequences of sin. Romans chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. And here's, I think, where we often find ourselves. We often find ourselves in this situation. Romans 7, verse 18, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present, both, for to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. Verse 19, For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, if that, now if I do that, I would not. Is it more that I do it, but sin that dwelleth in me? And so we we are all we all we have all inherited the evil an evil nature. We live in a world. We live in a world that is driven by a satanic system. And the influence of evil is in our lives. It's there every day. We have a sinful nature. We deal with that. And so we need God's forgiveness. But in the context of living in this fallen evil world and in the context of living with our sinful nature, God's, God above that, it does give us power to live right. And then we go to verse 25 of chapter 7. It says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of the Lord, the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. God has made it possible for us to live above sin. And we go to Romans chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. There is therefore, because of this conflicting, conflicting environment that we live in here on this earth, between sin and, 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 and good, it says, there is therefore now no condemnation to them 
who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. That's beautiful. God, in the, in the German, in the German translation, the word trespass is translated misstep. So as a Christian, as a Christian, as we go through life, we will find ourselves sometimes making missteps. We, we, you know, so this time of the year, I mean, you know, so I'm, I think about it as I get older, you know, you don't want to slip on a spot of ice, you know. The consequences are different than they were 40 years ago. And so I, I'm, I'm watching my steps more closely in the wintertime than I had when I was younger. George is laughing. What's up, George? Yeah. But in our Christian lives, sometimes we slip. You know, we make a misstep. And God's forgiveness is there to help us. God's forgiveness is there to help us. Will we have consequences? Yeah, we have consequences when we make a misstep, right? Yeah, there's consequences. But God is there to help us. And I, I don't think that as a Christian, I don't think as a Christian that it is necessary for us to live in a condition where we are totally and continually mired into some kind of sinful trap. Are we going to make missteps? Yeah, we're going to misstep sometimes. But I don't think it's necessary for us to be mired into something, into a trap, into a sinful trap where we are repeatedly, where we are repeatedly making the same mistake or repeatedly committing the same sin. That's, that to me is a life of victory where you can get out of that. Yeah. We make missteps, we make wrong moves. Yeah, that's part of who we are as, you know, we have a sinful nature, we live in an environment that is sinful. But God has provided resources for us to be able to live above sin. And I believe sometimes we just, you know what, claim that promise, right? Claim the promise and, and allow God to, you know, when David was out there on that roof that fateful night, God would have given him, God could have given him what he needed to avoid the sin and avoid all the consequences. God could have given him what he needed. It was there. It was ready for him to use. It was there to be, it was available to him. Well, I see it's, about time to close, so. I want us to leave, I want us to, you know, so this, the whole story of David and Bathsheba is a kind of negative kind of a thing. But I want us to be able to look at this and think about some positive things in this. And, and uh, you know, the fact that God, through the death, the resurrection of Jesus, has provided for us to live victorious Christian lives is a wonderful, it's a wonderful privilege to be a part of that. It's a wonderful privilege to be a part of that. 
And, and then to think about being exempt from the consequences that go with sin. It's wonderful. It's a privilege. I, I think it's a wonderful privilege to be a Christian. It's a wonderful privilege to be a Christian. To serve Jesus. To have Jesus as my master and Lord. It's a wonderful privilege. Let's kneel together for prayer.